Good morning. Welcome to Village Church. Uh, this morning is Family Sunday, which means our big kids are here with us during the sermon. And uh, my sons are not quite big enough yet to stay in the service, but they still track Family Sunday and they love it for one reason. Last night my son said, Mom, tomorrow is Lollipop Sunday. <laughs> so this is the feast of the Lollipop Sunday. Um, and kids, I want to share a few words with you first while the grown-ups have to sit and listen. Is that okay? So this morning I want to tell you about a time when I was scared even though I was a grown-up. It was before I had kids, Michael and I had been married for about four or five years, but I was really scared to become a mom. I was scared that I wouldn't know how to take care of kids if I had to take care of them all the time. Um, I was scared that maybe we wouldn't have enough money, we wouldn't be able to pay the bills. I was worried about um, a lot of things. I was just plain scared. It was something new. Being a mom, I'd never done it before, and I was a little bit afraid. But then one day, by complete surprise, I found out that I was pregnant. I was going to have a baby. And I still remember my hands were shaking like this when I found out um, that it was real. I was going to be a mom. And I was still scared in that moment, but in that moment, I immediately remembered a dream that I'd had the night before. It was a dream about my dad. Now, my dad had died when I was 14 years old, and I had not seen him for a very long time. But that night, I had dreamed about him taking me out to dinner, and he had this enormous table full of food in front of me. I guess I was, he knew I was going to be hungry. It was a really happy dream, and when I first woke up, I didn't think much about it. But when I remembered the dream after finding out that I was pregnant, I somehow wasn't quite as scared anymore. And I think that dream was God's way of letting me know, even before I knew that I needed to hear it, it was God's way of saying, it's going to be okay. That he was going to take care of me and help me learn how to be a mom. Now, I thought of that story again when I was reading about the transfiguration because it's a little bit like what happened in our Bible story this morning. Jesus took his friends with him up on a high mountain, and there God let them see something really happy. He let them see what Jesus really looks like in glory. When his face is shining and his clothes are blinding white, much whiter than this. It was such a beautiful sight that Peter and his friends didn't want it to end. Well, now, after that really wonderful experience, guess what? Peter and his friends had to go down the mountain and do some really hard things, things they were scared to do. They had to watch Jesus suffer and die on the cross. And then they had to learn how to be his disciples after he had raised and ascended to heaven and left them in charge of the church. But when they were facing those scary things, they were able to remember that moment on the mountain and realize it's going to be okay. Jesus really is the one. He is the one he said he is. We have seen his glory with our own eyes. God gave them that moment to encourage them even before they knew that they would need it. So here's what that means for you kids and grown-ups. You don't know all the hard things that you're going to have to do tomorrow or next week or even when you're a grown-up. There might be things that you're scared of, that you're nervous about, things you hope will never happen to you. But God knows all of those things. He knows what's ahead of you 
and he wants to help you not be afraid. He has promised that it really will be okay. And if you ever need a reminder of that, just try to picture Jesus on the mountain, all shining like a, like a nightlight. Try to remember Jesus on the mountain. It was his gift to Peter and his friends, but it's his gift to us too. So let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for knowing us, for knowing everything about our stories even before we do, and for knowing how exactly to love us and to care for us and to give us the strength that we need to be faithful. And we thank you most of all for allowing us to see Jesus as he truly is. We pray that you would send your spirit now to help us to do that in your word. Amen. Kids, I just want to add that there is a children's liturgy available with like some little prompts and places to color and um, there's some really interesting stuff in there for adults too. So if you don't have one, they're on the welcome table. You Please feel free to go grab one. So a few years ago, uh, my husband and I hiked Mount Brandon in Ireland. We were on our 10-year wedding anniversary trip, which by the grace of God, we planned to do one year early in the summer of 2019. <laughs> Meaning we did not have a once-in-a-lifetime trip scheduled for June of 2020. That worked out really well. Anyway, we spent a week in the Dingle Peninsula, which is the westernmost point of the Irish coast, and Mount Brandon happens to be there too. And we learned that it's one of the tallest peaks in Ireland, and it's actually pretty famous. Now, what's interesting about Mount Brandon is that it's named after the early Christian saint, Brendan the Navigator. So the hike isn't only just this you know, gorgeous experience of the Irish countryside, but it's also a very popular trek for religious pilgrims. And all along the way, it's scattered with these ancient Christian artifacts and landmarks. But when I read more about Mount Brandon, I learned that this mountain was probably associated with pilgrimage long before the arrival of Christianity in Ireland. And historians think that this is due to the mountain's unique position as the highest and westernmost point in the whole area, meaning it's the place where the sun can be seen the longest as it's descending below the horizon. You can just see everything better and for longer up there. For similar reasons, Jesus' ancestors also had kind of a religious relationship with mountains. In their view of the universe, heaven was up here, and the earth was down here, and there was a separation between the two. So mountains were literally closer to heaven, right? And thus closer to the realm of the gods. And this is why in the Old Testament you often hear about altars and temples and sacrifices being offered on what they called high places. Now in the Old Testament, when God called Israel to himself, he instructed them to tear down the high places that had been built to other gods and to worship him there instead. The result is that a lot of action happens on, Bible, on mountaintops in the biblical story. For example, I'll just name a few. Noah and his family are saved from the flood on the top of Mount Ararat. Abraham offers Isaac on Mount Moriah. Moses receives the law and sees God's glory on Mount Sinai. Elijah calls down fire from heaven on Mount Carmel. Solomon builds the temple on Mount Zion. You get the picture. And today's gospel reading belongs to that story to the story of Israel who has seen God's glory on the mountain. Jesus' disciples climb to a high place with him, and there they have what's often called theophany, a visible encounter with God. And I think perhaps more than any other mountaintop experience in the Bible, 
The transfiguration is the one that makes sense of all the rest. Anglican priest and poet Malcolm Geith calls it the mountain where all moments meet. Like Mount Brandon, it is the place from which we can see everything better and longer, including the journey we are about to take together as a church as we prepare for the start of Lent next week. But we're not in Lent yet, so let's not get ahead of ourselves. Today is the last Sunday of Epiphany, which is all about God revealing his glory, right? And here on the mountain, Jesus is revealed as God's ultimate and greatest expression of his glory. It's interesting because just a few verses back, Jesus asks Peter. He says, who do the crowd say that I am? And Peter answered, some say Elijah or one of the prophets of old that has risen. In other words, people are beginning to realize that Jesus is special, but they're not sure just how special he is. So here on the mountain, Jesus appears beside Elijah, which clears up once for all the questions of his identity. Jesus is not just one of the prophets of old. Now, he also appears beside Moses, who represents the law of God, and who prophesied at the end of his ministry that one day God would raise up a new prophet, the prophet for God's people. And Moses said, it is to him that you shall listen. That's Deuteronomy 18. And in case we miss this connection with Moses, Luke makes it explicit in verse 35 of our reading, which says, a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. It is to him that you shall listen. So Jesus is the greatest servant of God. Moses and Elijah represent the law and the prophets, and here they both defer to Jesus. And even more, you could say Moses and Elijah have been waiting for Jesus. You might remember these two men had their own encounters with God on a mountain, but neither of them was able to see God's face fully. Moses even prayed. He said, Lord, show me your glory. And at the time, God had to hide him in the cleft of a rock as he passed by. But here, Moses' prayer is finally fully answered as he stands in the presence of Jesus. So it's appropriate that we read this story at the end of Epiphany because it is the literal mountaintop experience of the whole season. In the cloud, in the voice, and in the dazzling face of Jesus, God manifests his glory to both the living and the dead. Now maybe you're listening and you think, well sure, it seems fair for Moses and Elijah to finally get to see God. You know, they were the greatest of the prophets. They were his special chosen servants. But Luke wants us to know that God's glory also comes to those who least expect or even deserve it. Enter Jesus' disciples. Peter, James, and John, these guys aren't doing anything particularly holy on the mountain. They weren't looking for God. They weren't offering sacrifice. They weren't even praying. Jesus invited them to pray with him, but verse 32 says that what they were actually doing was sleeping. Now, it's easy for preachers to rag on the disciples, you know, like, Look at how lazy they were or how badly they messed up. But I don't think the emphasis is on the disciples' failure here. I think the emphasis is on God's generosity. God graciously bestows on them and us the manifestation of his glory. Jesus is a gift, you guys. We did not earn or make him. We do not deserve him. We receive him. The disciples were sleepy. 
They were real human beings living with all the limitations of embodiment. As the mother of a four-month-old who is not yet sleeping through the night, I understand this on a deep, <laughs> bone-deep level. And you know what? God woke them up. He knew they needed to see Jesus standing in glory on that day. He knew they needed this particular encouragement because in the years ahead, their faith would be tested in ways they never would have been able to imagine. So he woke them up when they needed. And in a way, this whole encounter on the mountain was for their benefit, and all they had to do to receive it was to open their eyes. Now, when the disciples do wake up, they immediately spring into action, right? They recognize the enormity of this moment, the power of it, the beauty of it. And of course, they want to preserve it. So when it starts to slip away, look at verse 33. Peter says, Master, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, this is a Jewish expression of gratitude and hospitality. Peter wants to respond appropriately to this gift, and he also probably wants to protect this moment of closeness to God. If you've ever had a profound experience with God's presence, you know, it's a cliche, but we call it a mountaintop experience for a reason. If you've ever had that, you know this feeling of wanting it to last. Or maybe you haven't had an experience like that, and you're looking for it, you're longing for it. Either way, I think we can relate to Peter's desire to remain here in this beautiful moment in the light of God's glory. It's a deeply human desire, and one day that desire will be met for all of us. We're going to talk more about that in a minute. But back to Peter. Jesus doesn't shame him for suggesting that they camp out on the mountain. He's not wrong to want to stay with God in glory. He's just got his timing off. Because this particular moment is given to get them moving. On the mountaintop, we learn that the manifestation of God is linked to the mission of God. Look at verse 30. Jesus is talking with Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Now, the word for departure here in Greek is actually exodus, which hints at the double meaning of Jesus' death. Jesus has a mission to accomplish, and this moment in his Father's presence is preparing him for that. Think back to Jesus' baptism. You might remember that when he comes out of the water, the Spirit descends like a dove, and a voice from heaven audibly says, this is my Son, whom I love. And then from there, Jesus immediately goes to the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And here on the mountain, the Spirit again descends like a cloud, and again, God audibly affirms his son before he climbs down the mountain to fulfill his ministry. So the transfiguration doesn't only benefit Jesus' disciples. It also strengthens Jesus as he begins to set his face toward the cross. Now we start to see the downward direction of Lent in this story. Jesus, the son of God, leaves his position of privilege on the mountain and descends to the very lowest place where he must suffer many things and be rejected and killed. Those are his words. And in doing this, Jesus flips the religious script of his day. His people had long been climbing mountains to try to get higher, to try to get closer to God. But here Jesus shows that God is actually in the business of going low to the lowest place for us. 
We heard about it in 1 Corinthians 13. The height of God's revelation is love. It's patience, it's humility, it's to go low. And Jesus invites us to follow him in that. Just before the transfiguration, he says to his disciples, this is chapter nine still, verse 23, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. This is what we will be doing over the next 40 days as we follow Jesus down the mountain and through the wilderness. We're apprenticing him in the way of the cross. It's a ministry of descent, of going low. And this ministry is completely nonsensical to us, which is why we need him to show us how. It's why we follow Jesus who went first. Now, maybe to you, that sounds like an exhausting, impossible ask right now. Maybe the events of the last few years or the details of your own story have left you ragged and you can't imagine going any lower than you already are. Maybe you just wanna take a nap. If that's you, then it's possible you're already in the wilderness, and what you need to hear is that Jesus is coming for you, that he is unafraid to go to any depth to find and rescue you. And in fact, he has already gone there. He has already accomplished his exodus, our exodus, our deliverance, and in doing so, he has paved the way for us to be faithful in whatever season we find ourselves, however exhausting or bewildering or painful. And friends, this also means that the Christian life isn't only lived on the mountaintop, right? Sometimes we feel close to heaven. Sometimes we're blessed with moments or seasons where God feels so close and everything is so easy. But that's not the normative experience of the Christian life, meaning we shouldn't expect to feel that way all the time. Why not? Because right now we live in the valley between the mountains, between the glory of Christ's transfiguration and the glory of his return. And sometimes, a lot of the times, it's pretty disorienting down here. We live in a world that is still fraught with pandemics and wars, new wars, senseless violence that often leave us feeling hopeless. We live in bodies that break and decay and die. We watch our loved ones slip away from us. We get hurt and betrayed by the very people we think we can trust, and we hurt them back. We wrestle with doubt and confusion and disbelief. Does any of this resonate with you? All of this belongs to the normal Christian life because it's just part of the landscape right now. But here's how the transfiguration can help us down in the valley. This is how it helped to orient the early church in their own seasons of bewilderment and how it can do the same for us. This brief glimpse of Christ in glory, it's not just a picture of what was true in that moment for Peter and his friends. It's also a prophecy and a promise of what's to come. Meaning, even more than the resurrected Christ, it's the transfigured Christ that gives us a glimpse of the end of the story when the Son of Man will come again in power to set things right. Now this phrase I just used, the Son of Man, it's, it's a mysterious one, but it loomed large in Jewish literature, Jewish imagination, and it's the title that Jesus used for himself more than any other title in the Gospels. 
And just before he climbed the mountain and was transfigured, he referred to himself as the Son of Man. And he said, this is verse 26, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Verse 26, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Some here will not taste death until they see the kingdom, he said. Well, everyone who heard those words originally has died. So we know Jesus isn't talking about the second coming here. But right after saying those things, he invites some of those disciples up the mountain with him to pray, where he is then transfigured where his face and even his clothes begin to shine like the sun and where the cloud of God's presence begins to fall. This is very specific imagery and it would have meant something to Peter and his friends. Listen to how their prophets put it in the book of Daniel. I saw one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. His clothing was white as snow and his hair as white as wool. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and all people's nations and languages will serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom will not be destroyed. So what Peter, James, and John saw that day was a glimpse of the Son of Man. It was the inbreaking of a future moment when all God's people will stand in his presence and behold his glory. And when that kingdom comes, it won't be a passing moment. It'll be forever. A kingdom that will never be destroyed. On that day, our exodus will be complete. Our journey will be complete. And all creation will be in alignment again with the sun. That's our hope. That's what the transfiguration promises. It's not just a memory. It's a destination. And this promise of future glory, of unveiled rest in God's presence, this is what gives us the strength to carry our crosses in the meantime, because we know that our suffering won't be the final word. The disorientation and the chaos of our present age, it is only temporary, but God's kingdom will have no end. So we need the transfiguration. We need to remember this mountain where all moments meet. From there, we can look back on Sinai and remember our history, and we can look down into the valley of the shadow of death and see that ugly little hill called Golgotha where Jesus died. And then we can see in the distance that final mountain where the Son of Man will return in glory once for all. So that's the view from up here. But here's a question in closing. What do we do with that? Maybe all this talk about mountains and eternal moments is a bit much to take in right now. It can be good to zoom out and get the big picture, but today's gospel reading also helpfully makes it really, really simple. So if you take nothing else from this story, then take this, verse 35. These are God's own instructions. The voice from the cloud says, this is my son, listen to him. You may not understand where everything in your life is headed. You may not like the season or the place that God has you in. You may not want to follow where he is leading you, but the promise of the transfiguration is that he is trustworthy. We really can listen to him. Amen? I pray for us. Oh, Lord, we do thank you. Thank you for revealing your glory to us, for making yourself known, and for coming down the mountain 
so that we can know you and be in your presence forever. Thank you that the suffering of this moment is just a comma in the great story of redemption. And I just want to pray again in closing the collect from this morning, which captures so perfectly our prayer. O God, who before the passion of your only begotten Son revealed his glory upon the holy mountain, grant that we, beholding by faith the light of his countenance, may be strengthened to bear our cross and be changed into his likeness from glory to glory. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen.